You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. The 602 Club proudly presents Snyder Cuts, a Zack Snyder directorial podcast, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as he is every single week, the Batman to my Superman, John Mills. Yeah. No, you know, the thing is, it's a good thing you didn't say Joker because I'd have used that line from the uh, the nightmare sequence at the end of Justice League. <laughs> when this is over, <laughs> I promise you, I will effing kill you. <laughs> Would have made it awkward. Yeah, yeah. Well, we live in a society. Yes. Where honor is <laughs> where a memory. Honor is a memory. Uh, anyway, but, uh, no, we're excited to be here tonight. Um, we've got a couple more episodes here for you before we hit Zack Snyder doing Army of the Dead. We are going to cover tonight the release, the Snyder cut book that Sean O'Connell did and, and just really gives, give us the opportunity to kind of talk about what happened because this is is something we didn't talk about obviously in the episode where we reviewed the movie because we were too focused on a four-hour movie and um and the next week uh john and i are also gonna go back and we're gonna watch uh zack snyder's justice league again but the justice is gray edition and Mm -hmm. talk about that and uh, i think that'll be really fun to kind of dive into you know the validity of doing something like that and heck why not but anyway before we get to all that stuff, uh, just a quick reminder, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, we're in the 602 Club feed, so just make sure you're subscribed so you get the show as soon as it drops. You can find us on Twitter, at 602 Club. We're on Instagram, at the 602 Club TFM. And of course, you could find us online at trek.fm. And then if you want to see us on Facebook, at Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We've got a listeners-only discussion group. You can talk to listeners from all over the world called the Babel Conference you can find on Facebook. And go to trek.fm slash contact if you would like to send an email to John and I. So, John, I kind of wanted to start with this idea of, because O'Connell does this, I think, pretty well in the sense that in the book, he really does a great job of kind of setting the stage for the DCEU in the first place, the hiring of Zack Snyder. Um, Obviously, we're coming hot off the heels of, you know, Nolan's Batman trilogy. Nolan is involved with helping kind of like Shepard and who's going to be a part of it. He's a producer on Snyder's movies here, as is his wife, Emma Thomas. And so um, it was fascinating to me because DC makes a big deal of saying, from the beginning, we're doing something different. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's fascinating to see and to go back and look at all those quotes and stuff that we get in the book because the the problem became is when they decided they didn't want to do something different because it wasn't immediately making them a billion dollars every film. Mm. Well, I mean, the thing is... They obviously, they kept rolling after Man of Steel, which had its own critics, uh, its own sort of trials and triumphs sort of thing. Uh, you know, we, we chronicled here, you know, me rewatching it and my opinion rehabilitating a little bit. Um, but you know, it wasn't, a little bit. 
It, well, uh, my opinion on Batman versus Superman rehabilitated a lot more than my opinion on on uh, Man of Steel. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot more distance to cover on that one. But, um, you know, it was it was at best like a lukewarm reception to Man of Steel. It, it was different. And they stayed committed to it at the very least uh, with that. But I think that very much Batman versus Superman was the inflection. I mean, I'm not saying anything original or new, you know, like it's an inflection point. Like I, I can understand investors getting scared. I would see something like a, if this were Lucasfilm when George Lucas owned it and he were calling the shots, he would have just said, okay, well, that's pretty good, you know, and, and kept moving forward because he's very much, he's, even though he's a businessman, he's also an artist and he's like, you know, you got to let the right. artists do what they do. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think they immediately got cold feet, but I think that probably what it is, is the reception of Batman versus Superman isn't what they're hoping. And then it's that one, two punch of civil war doing so darn well. Sure. And Spider-Man taking the, in a sense, right. and people are going to hate this analogy, but it's sort of like, when except the release order is reversed it's sort of like when the matrix in 1999 steals the thunder of the phantom menace Mm -hmm. and suddenly like one of them has to get kicked and one of them has to get praised and that's sort of the relationship between those two movies and so sure in a sense like in a sense if lucas was not in charge i could easily see people panicking and trying to change course on the prequels but lucas is his own man he's like i made enough money i'll i'll go ahead and do my own thing Right. So just just something that I okay. I understand it's not quite apples to apples, but it's about as close as you can get. So the MCU started with Iron Man. Mhm. And it makes less than 600 million dollars worldwide. Mhm. Man of Steel comes on and makes over Six hundred million dollars worldwide. Mm-hmm. Now, look, I get one is Iron Man, and a character that not as many people are familiar with, and the other is Superman. But if we're comparing what it takes to create a franchise, right, which is to build as they, you have to do, I, it seems so overreactionary to me for wb to be so worried about box office draw when you're just if like if we were in quote unquote phase one of dc Mm -hmm. dc's films are actually doing better than the marvel films were at the beginning because the next movie to come out is incredible hulk and it makes less than 250 million dollars worldwide and then of course we know batman v superman makes over 800 million dollars worldwide so It just seems like to me, and and then of course, for the DCEU, you had uh, the uh, Wonder Woman come out. Wonder Woman does fantastic at the box office. Uh, And so it does seem to me that there's really this envy that gets in the way with those at the studio. Of course. Um, And and it's... And what fascinates me about it is just the fact that 
Yeah, in fact, Wonder Woman it makes over eight hundred million dollars at the at the worldwide box office. You yeah. know, so if you had done some version then of the Justice League that Snyder had done here, if you would just let him do his version, it just seems as though that would have gone pretty well at the box office momentum would have carried it far enough but the thing the, the thing is this this is this is the whole perception shaping reality sort of thing is supposedly they're driven by the numbers but they're making emotional decisions and i think envy is part of it but there's also people don't seem to or people seem to discount the idea that I think is, is very prevalent, which is, especially in Hollywood, the sort of pressure of acceptance. You want to be the cool kid at the party. And right. they weren't the cool kids at the party. And imagine, uh, you know, you, you make something and you go, and again, I, you know, I'll bring up Lucas again, right? Because Lucas weathered that storm where Phantom Menace wasn't what people wanted and neither was Attack of the Clones right. or Revenge of the Sith. And people just hammered him for it. And his opinion was, well, you know, I'm making my movie, whatever. He didn't care what other people's opinions were. Now, you can debate endlessly whether that's a good or a bad thing, but it's an artist thing, right? Right. So these people who are supposedly driven by bottom line, they're also driven by the same. They don't want to be made fun of. They don't want to be mocked. They don't want to be belittled. They want people to all think that they're cool, too. Like... Envy, I guess, is the perfect word because they want to be the cool kids in the room and they know they're not. And so it's going to get under right. their skin. No, I, I think you're right. And and I'm just as we we're talking, I was kind of going through uh, the box office for the original uh, phase one of Marvel. Mm-hmm. And like Captain America, the original only makes about two hundred fifty million dollars worldwide. Right. Like, Thor makes a, a little under. $500 million worldwide. So none of these are like massive box office successes. In fact, every DCEU movie, even Suicide Squad, is making almost twice as much as what any Phase 1 Marvel film was making at the time. But but the thing is, there. I think you said it earlier, it's not apples to apples. Those True. business people are not comparing apples to apples. They want I, anybody who's worked with a, right. with any sort of corporate chain of command. Why aren't we doing this? You can bring all of the data that you want to saying if you compare us to actual trends at this time and we just started, they don't care. Why aren't they making their money right now? This is happening yeah. as we speak in business boardrooms and, and conference rooms across the world. Mm hmm. People are doing better this year than they were last year. But why am I not making the money I want to right now? And no matter how many times you bring out the slide deck, look at how much better we're doing. Yeah, but how much better we're, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's all again, that perception thing and what they needed. This is where I'll lay it specifically in Warner Brothers lap is they obviously didn't have somebody at the top who actually understood what was happening. Sure. Right? Oh, yeah. To, yeah. to your point, if you had a steady hand at the wheel who can sit there and say, 
present your own case. Somebody comes in and says, yeah, but look, we are doing better than. Maybe there was nobody there saying, Mm -hmm. but look, we're doing better than phase one, and we started later, and so we have to compare to phase one, not phase two. Exactly. Well, and... And just on top of that, you know, uh, we just got that big Chris Terrio article that came out. Uh, mm-hmm. And Terrio himself even mentions that the choice of when films fell in the DCEU was arbitrary. It mm-hmm. wasn't based on story the same way the MCU had mm-hmm. been with Feige and Control. And, and you can really see that because, you know, uh, the fact that it would, you know, Wonder Woman had to come out, they said, you know, after BVS, right? And then Aquaman wasn't going to come out until after, you know, uh, Justice League. And it's like, that's their fault for not sitting down with the person that they'd hired to kind of shepherd. It doesn't seem like anybody who truly ever sat down with Zack Snyder and been like, okay, what's your plan? You know, and but, then went from there. But again, that gets to um, where it's not apples to apples and what they're not seeing. That gets right back to that specifically because what you're talking about is you're talking about a situation where Marvel, everybody forgets Marvel was not initially owned by Disney. Marvel Studios is essentially, you know, coming out and they prove their game plan works. So when Disney buys it, there's a a structure in place. Yeah. Yep. They already have that plan in motion, mm. which is a different situation than trying to start the pl- true. And here here's while I'll throw Star Wars under the bus. Look at the difference between Marvel and Star Wars. They we want our money now. We're releasing a movie every year. You're going to make this happen no matter what, and I don't care if you fire a director every other movie. I don't care if you have to rewrite scripts. I don't care blah 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 blah. blah, blah. And look at the ill will that generates. And even though those movies make a billion dollars, they're losing fans. People may not want to admit that. People may not want to say that's an actual thing, but it is a thing. I'm not passing judgment on anybody who did it or anybody who doesn't or anything like that. I'm just saying it is a true thing. Mm -hmm. And so you have, again, Star Wars trying to, quote unquote, restart itself in the corporate structure. And look what goes wrong there. Marvel yeah. Marvel was the lightning in a bottle because they started outside the system as much as yes. they could. And I think this is where I would come down to, and it's not something that's in the book, but it does very much seem as though that if DC itself, which is linked with Warner Brothers, and it has been ever since, started, right? If you wanted to do this, you should have created your own movie studio. Mm-hmm. So that you are in control and Warner mm-hmm. Brothers is just basically the same thing that George Lucas would do, right? You're the mm-hmm. one who's going to distribute the movies that we're creating. And because you can tell the difference between having a sole creator to create something and shepherd it all the way through, obviously like the Dark Knight trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I think what they kind of hoped would basically be the same thing where Zack Snyder would be the one who would shepherd this whole thing through and obviously he has a plan uh and of where they're going to go he's also quite open to ideas as again that chris terrio article showed Mm -hmm. zach very open to ideas um and uh, willing to have criticism come in and all those kind of things so 
But it was that thing to where basically it's a corporation that is creating this. And the corporation doesn't really care about the end product. It just wants it to make money. It's not Mm -hmm. caring about the story or anything like that, which is exactly the reason that we get the Justice League debacle that we get in the first place, because Mm -hmm. they don't care. And you can heartily see that because... And and this is a the place where I will throw uh, WB under the bus, I think, is that I think that they do take disgusting advantage of Zack Snyder's tragedy mm-hmm. in his family and try to make something uh, and, and basically get it turns into this disgusting Frankenstein of a film. Um and because, they, I mean, literally, they hire the guy who did Avengers to come in and basically do DC Avengers. And you can't do that with unless you just completely start over and they wouldn't do that either. So it's just they just want what they want and they want it now. And it's kind of like a five year old having a temper tantrum. Yes, absolutely true. Also, what I will uh, put out there is one of the things that I find interesting as as we're you know m- moving there and so long as we've you know touched on Whedon I think that the book is extremely gracious in analyzing things uh in terms of the changes uh one of them being that uh he specifically says in the book that oh you get a sense that Whedon was fighting an uphill battle you have the homeless guy at the end of the opening credits that says I tried and speculates maybe that's Whedon himself speaking to the audience yeah. saying, I did the best I could. Give me a break. I mean, it has to be, honestly. <laughs> but does it? Because I was having this conversation with a friend of mine uh, the other day in light of the Ray Fisher article that just came out. Mm-hmm. Where I said, setting aside the way Ray Fisher might feel about what Whedon's motivations were or Jeff Johns or anybody else, setting that all of that aside... What I see and what I think the book misses a little bit of an opportunity to go after is the idea that Whedon shows a tremendous lack of humility, empathy, Mm -hmm. and humanity when he comes in on this project. He might throw out there, I tried, but it would have been better for it to say, we tried. And regardless Mm -hmm. of whether he was going to do what he did no matter what or anything like that. Anybody in any sort of management position, and a director is a manager, You, if you come in and you basically say, screw you, I don't take notes, I do it my way, to a cast and crew who have been traumatized yeah. by their friend and director having a tragedy in his family life, leading to him being fired, essentially, all of these sorts of things. It is disturbing to me that Whedon lacks the ability to come into that situation and sit down with everybody and say, hey, you know what, let's talk about it. Let, let's, I can't guarantee anything, but let's at least have a conversation I want you to understand that I'm here for you. Right. And this is this is where it'll sound extremely cynical, even if he doesn't mean it. Mm-hmm. 
you have to appreciate and respect people when you come into a situation like that. And if not, you're actually a bad director. Yeah. Well, and I think, sadly, we know he just is a bad director. Uh, we, we know that from everything that's, that's happened recently, you know, uh, and that's come out about him. And it is no surprise that he did not sit down with anyone mm-hmm. and do any of those type of things. Uh, because we, we, uh, again, we, we know that Whedon doesn't care. But that, but that, uh, that, so that's even baffling because with a book like this, you put me in Whedon's position, I'd be talking to everybody. I wouldn't necessarily spill the beans or torch the studio or anything like that, but I'd at least talk to people to, 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 and listen to people just to have that conversation to show, look, it's a bad situation. We're all trying to make the best of it sort of thing instead of, I made the Avengers. And it's like, yeah, he made the Avengers, but he built on something that had a lot of momentum from everybody else that did everything before him. And so it's, I don't know. I I don't want to disparage. Well, and this is one of the things that I do. Again, I will throw WB under the bus again because I really don't think they understood the type of person that they did have in Zack Snyder in the first place and the way he was working with these actors, the relationships he had created with them, the way all of these people rallied around him, yeah. um, obviously in the Snyder Cut movement. I mean, one of the big moments uh, in the Snyder Cut movement in the first place is when, you know, Gal and Ben tweet that out. Yeah. Put their stamp behind it, you know, uh, and, um, you know, and then, of course, you, you, you get Henry um, having uh, meeting him on the the, the announcement, you know, when, when they right. do the viewing party for. Man of Steel, and I, I loved uh, hearing his reasoning behind why it was just Henry, because you know, Zach's like we we started this together, so it mm-hmm. just felt right to just have it be Henry, and 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 you know, of course, uh, Momoa being such a huge supporter of this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. throughout the whole entire thing, that's a person who has created um, an incredible work environment to which people want to work with him and mm-hmm. will stick by him. Um, in in all ways, you know, uh, even even again, I'd re- reference the Terio article because it just came out, and it's so important to this whole movement because Terio talks about the idea that you know him and Zach come from very different backgrounds and like thoughts on things, and yet they were both able to come together and have conversations about the scripts for BVS as well as Justice League in a very constructive and conducive way to give us films that were better than when they started because they were open to ideas from one another. You know, here's here's a, uh, you know, with this book, I think uh, another thing that I will wind up dinging it on, quote unquote, is that very obviously the author is all on board. There's this isn't really an objective book, right? I give him credit because he basically states that in the beginning where it's very apparent that he's, you know, he's on the the Snyder cut train. And I prefer a book like this to be a little bit more objective to be. And I'm not criticizing. I'm saying that's just my preference, right? I want to ask you, and this is something that the book I think winds up touching on, if not explicitly, implicitly, 
stuff happens behind the scenes with movies all the time. Stuff gets scrapped. Stuff gets thrown, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know it. I know it. What is it? And, you know, because I'm speaking from somebody who has, through this journey, become more of a Zack Snyder fan. What is it specifically about this movie, this work, this director that powers all of the people that are interviewed in this book that have a whole chapter basically dedicated to their messages of love and support? What is it that creates that movement what is it that creates because the book hits on it that it exists but i'm trying still to wrap my head around what drove it to come into a like what is the magic spark that gives life to this spontaneously among such a large group of people so i'll use myself as as just an example because i I think that I'm a good representation of what people gravitated towards. I think there were quite a bit of people who were looking for a more serious and thoughtful comic book movie and take on their favorite characters. And... I think especially BVS was the one to which we, you know, Zach was not afraid to really challenge these characters in a way that Mm -hmm. we had never seen before and really pit them in the real world. And, and the, and the, and the things that the characters were going through are things that many of us have gone through, right? Self doubt, Mm -hmm. frustration, just trying to be people who are doing the right thing, but having people misinterpret that and then it hurt, you know, all of these types of things. And I think that there are a lot of people in the, that are comic book fans like myself who think deeply, we feel deeply, and these characters in these movies allowed us to experience our favorite characters that did that as well. Hmm. And so there was a real connection there with those characters in these films in that way. And that's who Zach is, right? Cause mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we talked about, you know, obviously for him and he even says in the, in the interviews in the book too. And he said elsewhere and he loves Watchmen, right? Because it's a deconstruction of comic book characters. And, um, part of that deconstruction is figuring out the psyche, you know, and, and what's mm-hmm. motivating them deep within inside and and I think that's what he wanted to finally do with a character like Superman. Let's get inside that character and figure out what makes this guy tick. What would what what in his origin story would cause him to become the icon that we would get? How would we see that play out if it was in the real world? And and all of that really I think connected with fans and we I think saw that Zach cared about the characters the way that we cared about the characters and um and was willing to show them warts and all like that they're not perfect they're you know they're just beings who are who are trying to do their best in a really difficult world and i think you know there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain in this world and i think the fact that these movies didn't disparage that or push that away and just kind of give us a happy-go-lucky 
you know, thing that we've had so many times. I think it just really connected with people. And I also think that just like we were talking about with the actors behind the scenes, there is such a genuineness to who Zack Snyder is that when he began to connect then with the fans, especially after everything that had gone down with Justice League, um, he created a community of people who were dealing with stuff, right? Mm. And it's one of the reasons why this whole movement led to, um, I mean, the biggest thing behind the Snyder Cut movement is not just the film, but the, the suicide awareness money that mm-hmm. they've raised. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that money. And so it's never just been about a movie, but it's also been about a movement of people uh, behind something that they found really, really important. And in all honesty, after reading the book, you know, a lot of these people have felt very deeply in their lives and may have been people who actually may have thought about suicide themselves. I'm one of them, right? And I I got that feeling from from reading this book that there are a lot of people whose lives had maybe been to that point. And so when that happened to Zach and his family, I think it just... It galvanized the fan base in a way that um, created something to which they immediately felt connected to this man in such a deep, almost like spiritual level that went way beyond a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, to me, I, I don't know, that's a really long-winded answer, but I think it's all of those things to which really create something that... I have not seen in Hollywood such a devotion to a director since I would say Lucas, where you just have the most ardent fans who will be behind him and watch anything that he does, regardless of what it is. They will, they would do anything for the guy. I, I, honestly, I, I can't think of another fan base that's that devoted. Well, I will, I will say that there are people very devoted to uh you know, there were very devoted Kubrick fans it, it never rose to the scale of the block Kubrick didn't make blockbusters the, the way that we understand them he made tremendous art and there were people who were our diehard Kubrick fans uh and, and I know that that you know that comparison might might get under people's skin it's just fascinating to me though because I I understand what you're saying, but I've never seen it, it. I've never seen people want a director's cut this much, with the exception of even though it was a slow, slow burn over a long period of time uh, with Richard Donner's version of Superman, too. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that Superman is the character that motivates it in, in both ways. Right. You know, in both instances, basically, it's people saying there's a better Superman movie in here and you <laughs> robbed it from me. I want to yes. know what it is. Right. Like that, well, that in and of itself is a very interesting aspect to it. You know, that is something I think uh, Sean does a good job of chronicling in the book, which is this whole idea of the way that fans started to piece together what what they got and then being like this because Mm -hmm. those original trailers did feel very different than what we ended up getting. And Mm -hmm. so it became one of those things where it was the detective work of, okay, how could this happen? Because this feels so much different than where we came from. 
Mm-hmm. And then as we went forward with, you know, the Steiner Cut movement, you really see fans beginning to piece together. And then, of course, Zach is a part of that as well. You know, Zach is definitely involved himself with helping fuel the flames right. for the Snyder Cut movie by basically always legitimizing what fans were talking about by proving them to be right with just enough of a tidbit to be like, oh, they're talking about this thing, so I'll give them this picture. Or, you know, like... You know, what? what's interesting is, uh, I think you hit on something there, and I think that the book does hit on this as well, is this idea that uh, Snyder seems to genuinely respect and appreciate the people that do call themselves fans of his in a non-cynical fashion. Yeah. He is... Now, I'm sure there's somebody that could say, oh, come on, it's completely cynical. He wanted to get his movie out there and he knew how to to get things moving and everything. But there's there's a legitimate playfulness, I think, and I think even in the book, it doesn't necessarily say it explicitly, but there's a certain playfulness with Snyder, a showmanship where he's aware this is what people want. And he is a little bit coy here and there, but he, he puts something out there as an encouragement to say, Hey, yeah. Now, what what is interesting is you could see somebody snap and just blurt it out and say, this is what was different. This is everything that was going on. This is everything that it is. Um, and here's the footage and do with it what you will. But he knows he has a movement that can get his original vision out there. So why give it away for free if it will? Sure. Uh, the the difference I would see is, for example, Donner is Donner's career goes on after Superman and Superman mm-hmm. two, and he 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 does some great things. He does some dodgy things, but he does some great things along the way. He establishes the Lethal Weapon franchise. He you know Goonies becomes a cultural touchstone for the world. Um, whether he's producer or director, he's churning out stuff that people love. And, but when Superman two, you know, the Donner cut comes around, I remember seeing the intro for it where he's, he's almost playfully amused of, I had no idea that people wanted this, you know, those aren't exact words. Snyder knew people wanted this. So I think that there is, I think any director, if they see the opportunity will encourage and fan the flames, you know, as it were, to get the true vision out there. I mean, they're artists. That's what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though the book doesn't go into it, this is, I think we, you know, we sort of like delved down a rabbit hole. Do you think, and we've touched on this in previous discussions, but so long as we're here with it, do you see any other, any other director say David Ayer, anybody else, able to leverage something like this. And I ask that specifically because you gave all of these great reasons for why Snyder, you know, was able to get the Snyder cut out, why people are so dedicated. 
What's the missing link then with Ayer? Is it just that people just don't care as much about his work? Is it people just don't care as much about, uh, you know, a Suicide Squad director's cut? Like, what magic juice does that miss? What is gone from that? Why can't that happen for him? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it does. It does seem like. There, there is definitely a, the group of fandom that wanted the Snyder Cut definitely would love to see the air cut. And I would love to see the air cut. I think it would be a much better film. Um, I think, um, part of that is again, you know, gosh, you know, WB cannot stop meddling with its directors. And especially when all intents and purposes, the, WB said, we're hiring people to do what they do mm-hmm. to make films that are different from the MCU. That's how they started off. And mm-hmm. then, of course, that tone completely changes the moment they're not making a billion dollars. They're just whiny little babies who want what they want. And so, uh, and they want it now. Mm-hmm. And they're not willing to put in the time and the effort to get it and allow things to grow. Um, you know, I, Again, the, uh, 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 just to compare it to the MCU, the only movie in the MCU uh, uh, that I would say in the in Phase One that is still probably a, I would the absolute top tier Marvel film could be in most people's top five is Iron Man. The rest of them are are good. They're not they're not all and they're not all great. I mean, Thor is a train wreck, so um, I can't stand that movie. Uh, so. And, and, and Avengers is good, but I wouldn't say it's the best one of the, of phase one. I mean, to me, again, phase one, it, Iron Man is still the standout of that. It's just an incredible film from start to finish. So it's just frustrating that we, we couldn't get people that cared. So back to air. I, I don't know. I, I do think. Snyder himself is a personality that's not easily replicated. He's mm-hmm. just very, very good with people. He's very, and it, it shows again, I think, you know, as we were talking about, everybody behind the scenes loves the guy. Everybody in it, you know, besides the studio, everybody else seems to love the guy too, you know, and I think that's just something that you can't you you just you can't just replicate easily so um whether or not we ever get an air cut i i don't know um and part of that is i just don't know if david air has the same persona enough to be able to to get that um and who knows because i don't know obviously what we got with the snyder cut uh, every i mean zach only shot two things and I'm like, like, super quick, right? Like, it, it, there wasn't, he wasn't adding more footage or need. I mean, I who knows what the assembly cut of, I don't know, for Suicide Squad is. So, uh, if they have everything they need or whatever, but I just think, uh, I, I do think it just comes down to Snyder himself. Really. Well, I mean, I you know the thing is, it's like we're getting a. a 
Sylvester Stallone revisiting Rocky Four, and I'm like, nobody asked for Rocky Four to be redone. <laughs> it's very true. But he's doing it. It's very true. So it's like, well, like if Stallone can get backing for that after seeing it, I was not asking for that. So okay, now listen, those are that that is one of the best 1980s soundtracks of all time. Okay, true. It true. is. It's a it, great soundtrack. It is an accidental. Uh, masterpiece of montage <laughs> and, uh, the world's, the world's greatest, like, it's the music video movie of all time. It's amazing. It, yeah. And it, fe- it features 10% new footage and it's still, uh, you know, a rollicking good time. Anyway, um, I think that, uh, another spot where the book excels actually. While I dinged it earlier, and I want to get your your take on this, while I dinged it earlier for it not being objective, which is my preference, I do think that there is a uh, like an infectious joy about the topic that is brought to the book, where it's hard not to get swept up in it and say, "Yeah, you know, like you're you're like it, it's a really great marketing tool." I if if Warner Brothers were thinking, they would have. They would have paired up with with him to release this book as a hype piece for the Snyder Cut. And that that's another interesting thing is why wouldn't they go ahead and work with somebody and put it on the official imprint or what have you to, you know, emblazon it with Snyder Cut stuff and uh, behind the scenes footage, yeah. like all of that sort of thing. Why do you think this has to exist in that that independent realm? Do you think that that helps it to give it more of uh, an unauthorized flair? Or would you have preferred something a little more J.W. Rinsler making of Star Wars sort of official uh, hagiography of the, the thing? I, I think the reason that we don't get that is because, in, the, in all honesty, uh, the studio is hoping that by releasing this once and for all, they can move forward. And mm-hmm. they don't want it to continue. Mm. They don't, they, you know, we, and, and we got that really tone deaf, uh, announcement from them the weekend after the movie came out, you know, like that Monday or Tuesday where they're talking about all the things that they're going to be doing next that ha- don't have anything to do with you know, the mm-hmm. restore the Snyderverse. They're basically saying, we gave you what you wanted or you said you wanted, and now we're trying to move on. And I, I again, I we talked about earlier, and I really think it comes down to a pride issue. The studio doesn't want to admit that they were wrong mm-hmm. in and choosing the direction that they chose. And they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, which is that we give you the Snyder Cut and then we move forward with other things. And the, and the, the biggest problem with that is is that they released the Snyder Cut and we've all seen how much better it was of a film and how much better the direction was that was was going than what we have now where... I mean, literally, it's just this strange scattershot of a schedule that doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. And so I, I think that's a that's a big issue for 
the studio. And it's the reason why this book wouldn't have been given um, any kind of, you know, legitimacy because this is not a thing that they want to see continue. Um, and mm-hmm. I, in all intents and purposes, it's probably better for the book to have not had that either because then they would have come in and said, oh, we don't want this in there. We don't want this in there. And we blah, 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 you know, so um, I think the book has more legitimacy in some ways by not being official because you don't get the feeling like there's any behind the scenes. Right. You know studio interference so although he works for screen rant it, it, am i getting the the site correct on that because the thing is what i'm curious about is since i know he's an online writer is sometimes they feel a little bit of pressure to uh, not be too harsh because i mean i don't know he works if, for cinema blend cinema blend i i apologize i apologize i i Enjoy the site. I just couldn't recall the name. Um, Cinema Blend is a good good site to go to, but uh, mm-hmm. I think that sometimes. Do you think that there was any factor of fear of losing access, like a Disney type of thing, where Disney will screw you up professionally if you talk too harshly about them? Do you think any? Do you sense? Do you sense anything in the book that he held back? Like I've always wondered, did he? Was he as generous about his opinion on Whedon's involvement as he was because he didn't want blowback that could affect Cinema Blend or his access to Warner's material? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a possibility. You know, I, I think anytime anybody's writing something about a major company when they're in the entertainment industry, you're having to think about those type of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for the most part, he does a pretty decent job. And and overall, I think the, the best part of the book is that for anybody who's just kind of curious about this whole phenomenon, it does a very good job of giving you a firm kind of like foundation mm-hmm. of the why and the how. And what I really appreciate is, is that there has been this narrative recently of just trying to always have to talk about you know the bad actors in the movement Mm -hmm. and he covers some of those people but i think it's clear that on a whole there's always going to be bad apples in any group but the majority of the people behind the snyder cut movement are all incredibly wonderful people who put their time Mm -hmm. energy into something that they they wanted but at the same time as zach said how could these people be so bad when they've raised you know like what was it? Five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars for charity in the in you know uh, suicide awareness. Like that. That's just that you, these people cannot be bad actors, or most of them can't be. If that's really been their goal, as well as to get the movie that they wanted. It it is the thing is life is always more complex than people want to admit. And they will hang on to those bad actors specifically because they view it as a way to discredit what happened. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, it infuriates me because, again, like you said, this book does address that not everything is is peaches and cream the whole time with everybody that's involved. But you have to look at the whole. You have to look at everybody. Mm -hmm. And on the whole, yeah, okay. Like... like you said, that I, I wasn't even aware of the organization 
you know, for, for, for suicide prevention, I am now. And it's all because of the visibility that's given, uh, you know, by this movement. And it's like, I agree with the idea that they put their money where their mouth was. They yeah. said, yeah. we're going to prove that this is about us trying to do good in the world. We're going to mm-hmm. try to make something positive happen out of this, no matter what. Even if the Snyder Cut doesn't get released, they still raise that money for suicide prevention, which yeah. is a worthy and noble cause. Like, why why would you disparage that? The only reason I would see it is as a talking point to hinge on anybody who acted in, you know, bad faith or something like that so that you can say, yeah, well, I mean, but we don't want to go down this road because then we'd be right. caving in to bad people. And it's, I don't know. I, I just, that part irritates me because I have interacted. I know you have as well. We both have interacted with people oh, who yeah. were part of this movement. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, you know, I, I, a friend of mine, um, Scott, uh, who has been on the 602 club, is a big part of this movie. He's in the book. You know, uh, he's over there on DC Film Squadcast. Uh, and so, uh, and I know him personally. He's a wonderful guy. Um, I know, uh, the, the people behind that network are great. You know, all, all stand up people doing great work. Uh, you know, and legitimately spent, you know, lots of time and lots of money mm-hmm. on supporting. Uh, these, these causes, uh, a lot of them, you know, what's great, you know, you've got, uh, ink to the people, you know, which is a fantastic website. I actually have one of the sweatshirts on tonight. Uh, they have great stuff that Zach helped design and stuff that, you know, you buy it and it, it helps support, um, you know, the, uh, AFSP. And so like, this is, this is the thing I think that I love about book and and just getting to talk through all this because it it is it is the perfect storm of a studio which truly doesn't understand what it has Mm -hmm. and i i think you know if anything was done correctly like you mentioned marvel started off as its own studio and if, 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 we, if I've learned anything is I think that DC needs to have its own studio mm-hmm. and then just look for a distributing partner because mm-hmm. that would serve them much better. And, uh, in the end, then it is more about, I mean, obviously you want to make money. You're in the film business, but it can be more about story first. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and gosh, you know, it's going to be fascinating to me to see what does happen in the future because I, I think with the success that, that Zack Snyder's Justice League has had with the response that it got, um, I, I will be very fascinated to see, you know, how people like, you know, his army of the dead and, mm-hmm. you know, at, whether or not they finally wise up and just let him finish his other two Justice League movies and, you know, then you could truly be done, you know. And, yeah. and uh, let me just say this. That was the genius of what Zack was trying to do in the first place. He was basically trying to replicate on a slightly larger, on a much larger scale, what Nolan did, 
which is to create a whole arc for all of these characters to play into, but also create a great cutoff point to say, by that point, by this time is done, we're ready for something new. And then you just reboot it like you do with comic book movies, you know? And again, they weren't trying to replicate the same thing where Marvel, where it just continues forever, like comic books do. Like he was tri- literally trying to create an entire arc that you could watch through, you know, 10, 12 movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was the, you know, the story. So, um, it's sad that the studio again couldn't see that because you had an endpoint. So you weren't trying to drag actors out when they're too long in the tooth to be playing the role anymore anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it was a genius idea and they just, you know, it is kind of, Blew it. <laughs> so I'm presuming your final review is that this book is worth picking up and reading, even for somebody who isn't necessary. Here, here's the key question. Obviously, it's worth reading for people who care about Justice League and are interested in the story of the Snyder Cut movement, all of that stuff. No star ratings. Mm-hmm. Yes or no? Simple binary question. Is this a book that you would recommend to somebody who isn't invested in the idea of Zack Snyder and or movie making? I think that this is a fascinating book about the cultural phenomenon that was the release of the Snyder Cut movement. And regardless of whether you were behind it or you couldn't care less about it, I think it's just a fascinating book about that. Because really, it's a it, this book is so much about the human condition and why we want the things we want mm-hmm. and what we're willing to do to get them. And I think that was worth reading. Um, and I think that this is a book that may give, quote-unquote, maybe the haters uh, an interesting look behind the scenes uh, to see what drew drew this movement and what pushed this movement forward and give them an opportunity to kind of um, have a non-cynical look at this because I do think one of the things that O'Connell does very well is that this isn't a cynical book. Mm-hmm. It's just a honest book. He's just yeah. trying to he's just trying to discuss the the movement honestly um and he's you know obviously he's more in the camp of the 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 Snyder Cut movement itself but he's not mean-spirited to anyone when he could have been like you said you know when we talked about Wheaton so I do think I would recommend this book to anybody if you if you're just it it all interested in this phenomenon in any way shape or form I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't recommend the book necessarily to my wife who could care less about stuff like this. True. She's, you know, but <laughs> that's, that's sort of extreme. I'd say that three quarters of the people I know I would recommend this book to. Um, just because I know that they would at the very least get a kick out of the description mm-hmm. of how things came about, everything else that you said. Um, and also, get, I, I think it can be useful as a tool to illustrate to people when they say, oh, why are these nerds so obsessed about this stuff? I think this book does provide a good framework for 
why and how it does become so meaningful to people and why you shouldn't dismiss that out of hand. It's not a bunch of people who, quote unquote, don't have a life. It's a bunch of people for whom a piece of art has found great meaning. And that's yeah. Yeah. that's a beautiful thing. You know, um, there is a there's a great, you know, Zack Snyder quote that goes along with, I think, the book. And it, he says, you know, powerful art can heal, bring awareness and create change. And I think he embodies that. Uh, I think this book tries to explain that. And gosh, same thing happened in the 60s when a bunch of fans got together and 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 wanted Star Trek back. True. Very you know, I mean, excellent like, point. Th- this is not new in fandom. This is just a, another and a long line of things to which people really gravitated towards, really had an impact on their lives. Powerful art changes, it heals, it brings awareness. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Zack Snyder and his artistic works have done that for people. Hell, they even changed your mind. Yeah, well, yes, that's true, which is difficult <laughs> enough. <so>. Difficult <laughs> enough. Well, um, man... It, this has been a really interesting episode. Obviously, we spent an, uh, almost an hour talking about all of these things, and so now you can see why we didn't want to do that before the movie uh, conversation because, you know, that would yep. have been ridiculous. So, uh, but John, you know, if people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on or you know, maybe talk about uh, anything Zack Snyder related as we have here on the show, where can they find you? Uh, look for Castle Junkie. Uh, I'm on your social network of choice. Um Unable to quit Twitter. I don't know why they put something in the water. And uh, but um, I would say that I'm a lot more fun over on Letterboxd, uh, where you can give your uh, your reviews about things. Um, where I watch stuff like the kidnapping of the president from 1980, starring Mr. William Shatner. I, I love to watch movies and ones that are off the beaten path. So join me over on Letterboxd. I am on Vero as Castle Junkie as well. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party, co-hosting House Lights, where we go through the work of directors uh, from beginning to finish and and study their growth. And you can also find me over on the Nerd Party on a Star Wars podcast called Aggressive Negotiations, which I co-host with you, Matt Rushing. That's right, which was always enjoyable uh, and and always is enjoyable because uh, we're great co-hosts. What can I say? Uh, You can find me all (laughs) over uh, social media under MattRushing02. I am on Zack Snyder's preferred uh, platform, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. You can find me here on the network doing, of course, the 602 Club, which is the feed you're in now where all of the fandoms we love get discussed. Uh, we've got so much good stuff coming up this year. Um, films are finally returning to the cinema, which is great. And that means we're going to have so much good stuff to talk about. But, um, you know, John's still there uh, with me and Christy every once in a while. We're still going through the Rambo series, and we're just about to begin with John. He talked himself into this. It's his fault. Uh, all of the Batman films that we've never talked about, mm-hmm. starting with Batman 66. Yes. So... That's going to be a lot of fun. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, So make sure you're subscribed. You can also find me doing The Orb and Literary Treks. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Literary Treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek. And we have a couple more episodes over on the Nerd Party of Owl Posts that I'm doing with Drea Kaufman. We've been talking about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. 
but it's about to end. So you can check that out, though, whether you just started reading the series or you've read it a hundred times. It's the perfect podcast for you. But thank you so much for joining us. This is Snyder Cuts. Snyder Cuts.